0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has other amazing podcasts like Entrepreneurs on Fire, hosted by John Lee Dumas. Entrepreneurs on Fire stokes inspiration and shares strategies to fire up your entrepreneurial journey and create the life you've always dreamed of. Check out some of the recent episodes. Eight tools of improv comedy that you can use in work and life, how to turn your Instagram into a money-making machine, how to build a seven-figure side hustle without quitting your full-time day job, and overcoming the beast of depression as an entrepreneurial leader. If these topics are interesting for you, you definitely have to check out Entrepreneurs on Fire wherever you download your podcast. Today, my guest is Jagger McConnell, CEO of Crunchbase. Crunchbase is a prospecting platform powered by best-in-class proprietary data. Jagger joined Crunchbase in 2015 following the company's venture-backed spinout from AOL Verizon. Prior to joining Crunchbase, Jagger spent 11 years in various roles across sales, marketing, and product development at Salesforce, ending his time at the company overseeing the core Salesforce automation product line as VP of product in the sales cloud. We spoke about Jagger's career and lessons learned from early stage startups he worked at, Crunchbase's business model, including its marketplace data and machine learning capabilities, fundraising, growing at all costs, data, and a severe lack of investment in underrepresented classes. (laughs)
1: a lot of good answers that I have for that Um, you know I wasn't sure when I was a kid if I wanted to do film or if I wanted to do tech I was a nerd, I, I like, loved video games, I loved being in front of a computer more than probably interacting with humans. Um, so I, I loved that aspect of it, but I didn't quite know what my path would be. I just knew I loved tech and was involved with tech. Um, and then I was very into film. I wanted to make film, I wanted to write films. I had this whole passion around art. Um, so, and, and so I tried to ride that train as long as I possibly could where I wasn't no, non-committal all the way to college so i went to carnegie Mellon university and the reason i picked it was because they had a strong arts program and a strong engineering program so i was still punting on the decision um but it was actually nothing to do with school that 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 pushed me down the right path when it came time to for summer and i had to go have a summer job there was, it wasn't anything <laughs> for film but there was plenty for tech so I uh, did a little gig at Bayer Corporation, like the, the people that like make aspirin. They've got a whole like crazy chemical division and somehow I got an internship there. Uh, that got me doing computer stuff, um, came up with a business idea and off to the races in tech and haven't looked back. And, and even to this day, I think about retirement and I'm like, well, when I retire, that's when I make the films. Now I go back and do the art. Hopefully I can self-fund my, my, my film career. In the future
0: do you think you ever do you think you ever would do you think that well actually i'll ask you if you think you ever would but do you think that creativity uh helped your career like that love for oh, creativity and yeah. arts uh,
1: uh, one million percent um the the only skills i have in life are looking at problems and coming up with creative solutions to those problems like that's the only thing i can do um so that has translated into a pretty exciting tech career uh because a lot of it's so programmatic a lot of the time. so you where, where people don't like look at the pieces and say, oh, there's another way of doing this. There's an interesting um, aspect of this I hadn't thought of, and that's my that's my sweet spot where people say, look, these are the pieces that we have. What can we do with them? Um, that's that's my strength, and I think that comes right back to I've got this film idea, and how do I go and build a plot and something that was interesting for the whole whole thing? Um, they're definitely inner inter- intertwined.
0: And I guess that's so now now you're starting to pro- problem solve in startups. That was your after after Bayer, you started to get involved yeah. in some startups and, and walk me through some of that experience. Obviously, I don't know any of the names of those startups, so it wasn't yeah. like yeah. that positive. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they were very small. Um, And probably like the most notable, there was a company called Betasphere, not around anymore. Um, And it was beta testing software and services. So if you were like Cisco and you wanted to go and test a new router, we would find for you the beta testers to try it out um, and then give you feedback. So it was like this very early like lean startup maybe approach to building products and like getting feedback early into your product development cycle. So it's not a terrible idea. Um, and I started off there as like a project manager. It was pretty small, um, and, and I was excited because that brought me to Silicon Valley. So I was like, this is back in 2000, so like probably none of your listeners were alive yet. But, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but back in 2000, we, there, was a, there was a tech community there. And uh, it was an exciting time to be a part of it. Um, and it was right at the end of a big bubble. And it's actually a lot of people compare the current bubble crashing thing that's happening right now to 2000. Um, when when there was a big crash as well, where like Netscape had trouble, Pets.com went out of business, like all these things started happening, and for for me at the time, um, I was so scared of losing the job where I just worked my ass off. There was no way I was gonna get laid off with the crashing that was happening. So I just worked insane hours nonstop and always was looking for how can I add more value into this company and how can I tie myself to revenue as as as, as fast as I could. So when I joined, it was about, I don't know, 15 people. It went up to about 200, 250 people um, over about six months. So that was an amazing experience. We like, went into a gigantic new office. It was like, wow, this is, I picked the, the right horse. And then like six months later, layoffs started happening. And over the next four years, I still stay at this company, it was seven rounds of layoffs. And I saw the company go from 250 people all the way back down to 15 people. Wow, um, and, and it significant. was Oh, it was very big. And it was flattering because I didn't get laid off. So that was nice. So I I did a good job of adding value and convincing people I was valuable. But what also was helpful for my career was I – Saw an opportunity to pick up every single responsibility that got dropped as people left. Um, so I took over the sales engineering team because I, I'm, I'm this. I I know the product. I can do this. I, still, I started having more and more impact on product on engineering. Um, so by the end, I was a pretty critical player in that company, uh, and that helped accelerate my career even further because I wasn't afraid to just take on whatever responsibility I could no matter what the topic was, it didn't fit my job description, I didn't care. I just wanted to not get fired. Uh, and that's, and that's, uh, that was a pretty important part of that's my career. A, that,
0: that is an eye-opening experience. So everything you just yeah. discussed is, is what I actually try and highlight to people that wanna go work in startups. Like what mm. you just described to most people would be absolute hell. So I think that there is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, like, let's, let's be real. It's not, you just said, we went through seven rounds of layoffs and I was picking up Basically, responsibility as I went, and that is actually what accelerated your knowledge, your learning, your ability to ap- operate at such a high capacity in Salesforce and in Crunchbase, and like literally everything that you've done. Do you think that there's a, a major, um, a, a major wake-up call when people start to work in startups that they have to be aware of what the reality is, and what is that reality when you're working in a startup?
1: Yeah, I mean, for for sure, it's don't worry what your job description is you're there to succeed as a team right and just get shit done and there's no like I, I, it drives me crazy because i hear it more and more in uh, sort of today's generation, where it's like, well, this is this is this is my job. Job description, job description here. That's it. Yeah. Oh, you want me to do more than my job description? Well, you'll need to pay me a little bit more um, for that added responsibility. Like back in those days, that was not the case. It was, I want to keep my job. I'll do. I want us to succeed. I'm going to do whatever I can to make that happen. Um, and I think that's rewarded. And and ultimately, it, it, like the learning that you have is worth. Doesn't we way more than the incremental salary increase that I could maybe negotiated, um, and that's ultimately what got me the job at Salesforce, which unlocked um, all the doors that got me to where I am today.
0: What was the bigger? What was the bigger? Um, uh, I guess growth in your life was it at Salesforce or was it at Crunchbase where you went from X revenue and X size to to X revenue X size
1: uh, compared to Crunchbase? That's yeah, that's a toughie. Um, I've learned a, a lot. I from life impact i've got to probably give it to Salesforce, um and and the reason is is you know i I walked in the door there as a sales engineer like it was kind of the the, the, on the lower end of the sales spectrum um certainly like skilled and respected um but there wasn't a lot of growth path you can be a sales engineer manager maybe a director maybe a vp someday but that path wasn't super exciting to me um but the fact that I was able to move around the organization and find myself as head of product of the core Salesforce um, CRM, core Salesforce product, after those years, like that, that was transformative to my career, um, and that let me get the job at Crunchbase. So everything I've learned from Crunchbase has been transformative for me as a person. I've certainly learned way more than I knew before I started, um, but the impact of actually like what I learned at Salesforce got me to where I am, uh, without question.
0: And I, I, I was actually curious, like at what point you like, cause I have to just sort of timestamp the date and the time when you joined Salesforce, I'm trying to yeah. figure out where they were at cause they weren't public. At the time uh, right they were
1: they they had they, were, they had just gone public it was okay. 2004 um i joined it was like 80 ish million in revenue which is so crazy okay. to think the, how small that was and that they were going public at this size like it was it was really early
0: um, i actually didn't it, even think about that that is small for public. yeah That's
1: it was really, really small it was really yeah. small and it, and it was just i mean we we're 400 ish people like it was it was a small company back then um but the phone, I mean, but but you knew it was a rocket ship from day one. Even though like SaaS and software in the cloud was not certain, you know, like there's a lot of um, like, even when I first started, like my first week at boot camp, uh, so learning all the de- in- intricate details, uh, details of Salesforce, um, it went down and it was down for like days. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have made a horrible mistake. I should have gone to work at Oracle or something. This is not a good idea. Um, <laughs> So, so like it was that and it was that risky back then um, and, and it was a, it was a, a very uncertain model um, but the the growth trajectory like like as a sales engineer I, I had demos from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m every single day the phone was ringing up the hook there was just a backlog of demand of this thing and people curious about what it was and if it would work for them uh, and that was that was a fun time to be there and that's why like going public was obviously the right thing in hindsight, but, uh, it it was, it was, I've never, I've never been a part of a company growing that insanely
0: fast. So then, okay. So then the follow-up question is you, you, you encountered what it was like with the, the Salesforce, the Salesforce, uh, growth trajectory. You encountered what that feeling was like, that experience was like, it was transformative in your life and your career. Um, what are you doing at Crunchbase now to build an organization like that? So that yeah. not just obviously for the, the stakeholders, but investors, but also the, the people that work for you, it's gonna be the one that they speak about when they go off and become CEO of the the next incredible company. They're gonna say, this was a point in my career when everything changed for me, the growth, the learning, the education, everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, current space is an interesting thing. It's been around for a long, long, long time. Um, and the, the people think of it as a certain thing. Um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk maybe more about that later, but they, they think of it as this, this, this Sort of place. I go to look up companies, you know, that's, that's how, how most people think of it. Um, this gets back to one of my strengths when the opportunity to spin it out presented itself for me, it it was really obvious what this thing could be. And it's not intuitive. Um, the, the, for me, what I'm leaving Salesforce, the CRM system built on top of an empty database, right? Incredible software, no value on day one there's no value you've got to put all this data into it, 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 it to, to get a value out of it and the value is all around time savings and, and efficiency at, at the end of the day um, i saw an opportunity there i was like well what if it wasn't built on top of an empty database what if it was actually built on top of something that had very very valuable data that you didn't as an organization know wouldn't that make it 10 times more valuable um, so the when i heard about Crunchbase spinning out i was like well you know what if we built a prospecting first. Sorry, what do you mean yeah, by sure. that?
0: Spinning out, like when, oh, when you oh, say yeah. that. Oh, yeah.
1: So it was part of. So so before my days, like like it was a project at TechCrunch, and it was a this project where they would just track. Which companies are writing stories about, and then people could, the, even internally, they would figure out which writers were writing stories about which companies so there wasn't a lot of duplication. So, as this internal database, eventually they made it public, and then people could submit their own companies into Crunchbase so that they might get written about by TechCrunch. It was really like a lead source for TechCrunch initially. Um, no revenue, not a lot of users, not a lot of companies, like only like 10,000 or so companies. Um, over time, um, that slowly started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, no revenue. Um, America Online, remember them, went and built or, or bought TechCrunch, and they valued Crunchbase at $0 and said, okay, we'll take it, and we'll, maybe we'll, something will turn into it. Um, they invested to try to make it into like an ad, like they knew ads, right? So let's make more people see it, more eyeballs will sell ads, and maybe we'll make money that way. Um, so it, it grew to you know, 20, 25 people, um, and, uh that's when there was at least a lot of data growth there was a lot of like like trying to push on the data quality um but they still did not really have a, a real revenue model that advertising was only making at the end like a million dollars a year and you know if you had 20 people that's not going to cut it. <laughs> you know so you're, bur- you're burning a decent amount of money so verizon came in bought america online um and they're like We're, what are we doing with this crunch based thing like like it d- doesn't add any value for us we don't know what to do with it we should spin it out so eventually aol slash verizon want to spin it out as an independent company, hoping that it might first be a reduction of expenses on their, on their, on their P&L, but also uh, maybe become something bigger, um, being separate from, from the, this, this beast. So uh, that's when I joined. So I joined um, about a month or so before the spin out um and so on the day of the spin out it was at TechCrunch disrupt we announced that now crunchbase was independent and we're now going to go and do something entirely different um which is and that's all uh, you that's you, all you, me that's so th- <laughs> no no re- or,
0: well a million dollars of revenue you have you have a burn rate it's never been proven out before it's never been successful before and like yeah. Jagger. Like, go, go get it.
1: Go get it. (laughs) Uh, So and and so for me, I like I knew I wasn't going to be building a website to sell ads. So so one of my first missions was how do we turn off that ad revenue as fast as we possibly could and move to a subscription model where we're selling software on top of this thing. Um, And that's so that's what I meant by spin out. And it's to build this. This kind of my hope is this revolutionary um, CRM system that's this prospering for us. So a CRM system that brings revenue to you rather than you importing in what you're tracking and and working with it. So that's what we're what we've been building. That's what we're where we continue to build. Um, And that's getting back to your original question. It's that vision that gets people excited internally at Crunchbase. Where if you know if I was just like hey we're gonna build the biggest database of companies in the world and it's this, but bigger, you know, like it's, it's, just not, it's just not that exciting. But if you say, look, we're gonna do something that no one else can do because no one else has what we have and we're gonna play to that strength, build software that hopefully has a ton of value and leverage this channel that we have of 80 now million people using Crunchbase to go and sell them this tool that should make their lives better and easier and make the world a better place. But um, that vision gets people fired up to work at Crunchbase.
0: So then okay so then how did you okay so let's talk about the strategy you used to actually build that model out. So day 1 what so you're like okay so we have access to all this data yeah, people yeah. want access to this data we're going to sell them a subscription to access this data. That makes sense. Um you're building are you building a marketplace or do you have so much data already that you actually don't have to worry about the, the data side of it, you have to get pe Cause I know there's a whole bunch of components, right? Like you, yeah. as a user looking for data, I subscribe, there's a monthly recurring, but also I'm assuming at the beginning, you probably didn't have every company properly filling all the information about them. So the data wasn't hundred percent complete. And I know like now it's probably advanced. It's probably some sort of black box machine learning AI algorithm <laughs> that figures yeah. it all out, but yeah. that wasn't day one. So how did you first start building it out?
1: Yeah. So it's a great question. So when we, when we first, spun out um the data was not that great it was almost entirely user generated data which now today it's less than 10 so so there was we, we over time made a big shift but we didn't have time to fix the data we only had about a year of runway when we spun out and and so we had a year of runway to change our business model change the team um go and build the software um, that that I think people might buy, sell the software to show traction and raise a Series B before we're out of money. So, so it was it was a pretty stressful year that first year, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and it, and it was it was hard because it, it, you know the, there was there was only so much we could do with the skills that we had and the bandwidth that we had. So mm-hmm. the first step was um, let's build the thing that. It, just to see if anyone who has had this free tool would be willing to pay money for something else. So we built essentially a prospecting search tool. It basically lets you do it very complex advanced searches of, of the data, which didn't exist before, it was more of a lookup tool. I hear it, before it was, I know a company, I'm gonna look it up. Now it's, um, I, I, I have a certain type of company in mind, which companies match that description, and then if there's new companies that match that description, let me know. Like, now there's monitoring. So it's, it's give me a news alert, give me a funding alert, give me a new addition, new company that didn't match this this criteria before let me know immediately uh, and that's what we launched um, almost exactly a year um, after we spun out was crunchbase pro um, now we're tra- and then we're charging 49 bucks a month um, and it was like okay well d- is this going to work because now we put it out there again like announced it, tech techcrunch disrupt and if no one bought it we were out of business and like two months, <laughs> like, like maximum. Um, so luckily, people did buy it and we were able to raise a Series B from Mayfield uh, shortly after.
0: And OK, so as your, so how did you get your first, say, 50 customers on that first 100 first 100 customers? It was just through like you leveraged media, I'm assuming, because you had TechCrunch, you had TechCrunch Disrupt. So obviously you do have a little bit of reach there. But was there anything innovative, any marketing strategies, anything that you did that was a little bit different to actually acquire users?
1: Well, this is this is the sort of secret strength of Crunchbase. Is we already had twenty million people coming to our website, right? So they are already coming. Mm-hmm. All we really have to do is market to the people that are already coming to the site, um, and this will always be our, our strength. Again, like I mentioned earlier, eighty million people using Crunchbase. Can we go and sell them something? Uh, is 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 so we don't have to like our marketing budget relative to other companies our size is quite small because we are just trying to leverage our strength, which is people coming to site. And now it's like, well, who are are the people we should sell to, who shouldn't we sell to? Are we trying to sell them the big thing, the little thing, the medium-sized thing, all that sort of funnel, um, while trying to impact the user experience as little as possible so that the people that are getting value for free continue to get value for free. We don't want them to go away. We just want to, with a, array, to evolve into a little bit further in their career or a little bit further in, in, in their prospecting, mm-hmm. uh, they pay us money.
0: And then so what? We, like what? So we,
1: all we did was what? put up a, a a toaster on our website saying, hey, check out Crunchbase Pro, and here's a video showing you what it does. And I, again, with, by the time we, so we turned uh, backstage at TechCrunch Disrupt. I'm about to go on stage to announce this new product. We had already sold licenses, <laughs> but in the time that we turned it on, five minutes before I walk on stage, um, just because people were so eager to buy it from us. So it was it was rewarding because when I went on stage, I was already jubilant because at least someone had bought it and it wasn't my mom. You know?
0: No, that's amazing. <laughs> and well, yeah. I mean, there's a lesson in that in and of itself. I mean, if you like every company, I believe should be a media company, like. Technically... you leverage the twenty million people that are already coming to your site. You didn't have to you didn't have to find a new audience to target or a new I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. Indeed.com/Clary. slash Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. You know a new user base to target, which is very important. So, I mean, that's that is a lesson for startups. Obviously, yeah. if they don't have 20 million people hitting your site every day, they got to figure some way to monetize. But ultimately, if you become a media company, if you build masses, you can find a way to sell into that audience too, which is something that you 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 did day one. But the other thing that you probably wanted to optimize is the data. So I'm curious, when you first launched that product. Was the data valuable enough for people to pay for? Did you find out which data people would actually fork up some cash for and and what was not acceptable?
1: Yeah, it was it was a a, a scary learning for me because when it's a lookup tool, you you look up a company. If you've heard of it, the data is probably pretty good because it's probably a pretty well known company. But when you have a discovery tool and now people are prospecting for companies just based on a set of criteria, it shows all of the bad data. Um, so for instance, you could say, show me all the companies made before 1900. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see like, we have companies from like negative 32 BC. It's like, what is that? I don't even know what a negative year is. Um, and obviously it's not right. So we had a huge cleanup project where we like just had to do all of the stuff that we thought people might do to sort of figure out what data might be exposed as horrible. Um, and, that, and for me, that flipped the switch on we have to invest more on our data, once we get funding, to go and change how we get data. So it can't be user-generated, because you get squirrely things from people doing weird stuff, um, like giving themselves a $100 billion funding round, It's like okay, we need to go and put some some, some controls on this, um, which is now what we've done. So you asked a question earlier about marketplaces. Um, that was actually the next thing we did. After Pro, um, well, we, we replatformed the entire data set, and the, and the, or, or sorry, the entire website, the entire application, because we had inherited this thing that was pretty terrible so we had to rebuild the whole thing from scratch now that we have proven this prototype that worked and we were able to sell the next thing we did after that then was marketplace which allows us to go and integrate all sorts of data sources into what Crunchbase is Um, so and I can talk uh, uh, for hours about how we get our data and how data works Um, but the the net net is we expanded the data from not just user data but we also formed thousands of partnerships to go and get data in from governments, accelerators, VCs, data providers, all that is flowing now into Crunchbase to to make a unified profile. Okay. Yeah.
0: I was going to say there's a couple of ways that we could take this because I wanted to have some great startup lessons, but then I'm trying to like bridge startup lessons plus the conversation about data because I saw one of (laughs) your previous. So, (laughs) I mean, like it all sort of combines. I mean, You've built this incredible platform. We're talking about data. I'm curious about, and maybe I'll just let you speak about all these different topics. So like data security, um, what people feel comfortable aggregating, especially if if it's not user generated, um, GDPR, uh, Castle, all the different data compliance items that you have to be careful of and cognizant of. Um, What else? Also the fact that you use all these different partners. So I would say, let's talk about all the different data things that I'm sure you've dealt with. And then also all the different strategies you use to not just collect data, but I know you also use partners to build out the organization. Mm Because you've used all these different, different, you have like, I don't even know if this is the case still, but at one point you didn't have your own QA team. You had a partner for QA. So not only do you have all these partners for data collection, you like, you, you built a business with partners so that you, you don't have to deal with a lot of those internal costs. It's another interesting strategy. But first yep. let's talk about data, then we can go into like sort of business growth strategy. So talk you yeah. about data, all, yeah, all, sounds, all things data.
1: <laughs> sounds good. So let's, let's start with just how we get data. Um, so today we still have a great million user plus community of people who just put in data into Crunchbase why? because they want to be well represented on our platform if your company is wrong on Crunchbase investors are going to miss you they're not going to pay attention to you job seekers are going to think that you're dead in the water or you're not growing or not as big as they thought you'd be all those things require you to update your Crunchbase profile because our brand matters in the ecosystem Um, just like you keep your LinkedIn profile up to date it doesn't matter which other profiles are out there about you LinkedIn you keep up to date because that's the one that matters for you as a person. Crunchbase is the the parallel for a company profile. So that's one aspect. Then we've got as I mentioned about 4000 partnerships with governments, accelerators, VCs all over the world who Give us that data. Why? Because these companies, these governments, uh, these VCs want to be well represented on our platform again. They want to look like tech hubs. They want to be look look like matter, they matter that they matter and that are active. So they give us data directly. Um, we have um, about sixty data providers that go and stream data into Crunchbase. Um, that's massive amounts of data. Like you think about like G two Crowd. Like they've got all this data on products. Those are tied to companies, so we're able to go and absorb that into Crunchbase. So you have sort of this one stop shop that has all these different data. Um, facets coming together. And there's no way we as a company could go and get, like, as our core competency to go and, like, f- Generate all that data. There's entire companies that do that. Let's just absorb that data into Crunchbase. And they're again willing to do it for us because of our brand. And they want to be well represented. Some some of our partners you've never even heard of. Like a lot of people haven't heard of Bombora. They give us intent data. That data come, flows into Crunchbase so you can merge it with a, other data sets. Um, so that is a, a, another aspect of, of what we are. So no one in the world has ever combined all these data sets into one unified profile before. Um, and now you're able to do prospecting against all these different flavors of data all at the same time. And it's very, very powerful. So that's three. The fourth way is uh, our machine learning, our, our AI systems. Um, so that is a combination of crawling legal sources of data for us to go and get data from. Um, but but that, And that's a sort of table stakes. But some of the secret sauce is we also generate a lot of our own data based on what we see from all these other data sets. Um, so, and even from our own usage, right? So if everyone's flowing to a company profile page to go and check it out, that's probably an important page right now for whatever reason. Um, that helps drive our trend scores and our growth scores and our um, sort of recommendation engines. All these things are looking at which which data has impacted funding rounds are there more news stories are there people tweeting about this company a lot right now? all those things drive into does this company matter or not um, and that helps figure out which companies we should prioritize so that's the fourth way, and then the fifth way is we have a team of about twenty-ish people um, who work for Crunchbase, and they manage a team of about two hundred and fifty people overseas that go and do manual cleanup of data. Um, th- those automation, the AI systems flag things that I can't figure out. Is this is this uh, spam? Is this bad? Is this good? It kicks it over to the humans to go and add a human brain on top of it to go and 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 clarify. So you know we spend like twenty million dollars a year just making the data as good as it can possibly be, and of course expand it, um, all of that as a combination of those five things. And what's beautiful about that is, no competitor out there can do what we do um like I, I don't care who it is there's no one who has all five of those things um and can get themselves to a place where they can compete um, a lot of people are like oh i'll just crawl and i'll beat crutch base yeah good luck you're the, <laughs> there's actually, just no I no way wanna, you can do so it.
0: i i asked like a i did a horrible thing i asked like a, a compounded question so there was like 10 other things that i asked but i don't yeah. want to let you go on because i actually want to just pause you here and just yeah, double sure. down on one thing you mentioned um and then we can keep going So the one thing that i realized is that you became you became you've mentioned this a few times the source that people want to represent themselves on yeah now that's that's incredible because if you even look at what you said you 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 get data from g2 and i don't know all the different sources you get data from but g2 could even be considered a competitor but Mm. technically not because they're feeding data into you so how in the world did you become the person that everybody wants to be represented on because that that is Magic, however you manage to do that, <laughs> that's incredible, yeah. that market position that you're in. And
1: I, and I think it really comes down to, uh like G2, it's definitely a partner, not a competitor in our minds, as a, as an example.
0: You're gonna go I, I know, there. you know what I mean though? Cause like they, yeah, they also totally. represent companies, right?
1: Totally, but you would never go to G two to like figure out if they've got funding,
0: you know, like or, True, or yeah. if,
1: if or if they what their website traffic is. Like you'd never you would never think to go there. You say, oh well, I'll go to a similar web or uh, yeah, an Alexa yeah. for website traffic data. But no one had combined it all together into one place, um, and that was based on our roots. That was very easy for us to do because when our, the use case for at the very beginning of Crunchbase was, what the hell does this company do? I have no idea. I'm gonna go look it up by Crunchbase. I, I, I'm going on a date with someone, they work at fiddlesticks.com, like what the hell is fiddlesticks.com to do? You Google it and Crunchbase comes up. And then you go and look at it. That, Base level, that what I like to call the master record of a company, was already what Crunchbase was. We didn't have all the companies, but for the companies that we did have, we were the master record of companies. And then with that framing, then we can go and take all these different facets of data, like G2 products, and plug it in. And G2 gets excited because we give give it brand recognition as G2's data. Here it is. Click here if you want more data from G2 Crowd. So they see us as a lead source. Mm -hmm. Happy to do that because they're providing value to us
0: no i love that um but you didn't answer my question how did you become i guess because it was a master of like you you were the master of record and and i guess my point is i won't name competitors but how how come you were able to assume that position versus all the other competitors that are out there and i don't even know who you actually consider a competitor and i don't know who you partner with so i don't (laughs) want to miss you're good uh yeah you're good uh it's the
1: the few things one is we've been around for a really long time so our SEO and backlinks and all the stuff you look for for that drives how people do a Google search and you show up as the first thing, ours are off, off the map, like every competitor, no one has like the 52 million backlinks we have The Crunchbase, you know, and that's just from being around for a long time and being that master source of data where it's a standard way of talking about companies, like here's, here's the link if you wanna go figure it out that all those backlinks drove a lot of our SEO strength and that took, you know, 14 years to go and do. That's fair. Um, yeah. and that's hard for any competitor to even come close on. Um, you know, and, and, and the big ones, you know, again, I, I I'm, I'm probably less afraid to talk about competitors, you know, like a zoom
0: info, like let's. Talk- I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode HubSpot. So I was thinking about the shortest day of the year earlier. While technically we have the same amount of time as every other day, the lack of daylight makes it feel so much shorter, which is kind of the same feeling as working with disconnected tools. Our workday is the same length as always, but before we know it, we spent three hours manually fixing something that is quote unquote automated. Thankfully, HubSpot's all-in-one connected CRM platform serves as a single source of truth, for managing customer relationships across marketing, sales, service, and operations, meaning all of your team's data is truly connected. With multiple hubs, over a thousand integrations, and an easy-to-use interface, HubSpot helps you spend less time managing your software and more time connecting with your customer. Plus, with a quick and easy onboarding process, your teams can get started quicker than even the shortest day of the year. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at hubspot.com. Okay, that's guys, do, that's the point first point. one I thought of, yeah. yeah like how can naturally. they connect? Yeah. that's natural
1: um, who the sh- who gives a shit what zoom info has on my company in fact I want them to have the data wrong in zoom info <laughs> so that no one finds me you know I want them to have the wrong data and I don't even know how I could update the data if I did care enough to update the data in zoom info mm-hmm. it's a very closed system um, and that means that the data is not very good um, I, I love going and, and it's one of my favorite things to do is go and show people zoom info and I like, go oh, let's look up a company together and let's look look at the data and the reason it's off is because they can't they don't have those five things they don't have the partnerships they don't have the 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 users updating the data um all those things lead to shitty data ultimately and 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 doesn't matter how good your tool is your data is is your 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 crown jewels
0: and and okay so that's a great point it's almost like because you've opened it up to the users that's one i mean you do have the five pieces but opening up to the users and having that user input and almost it's not it's not a social community, but it's, it's, it's like pressing up against like a social environment for B2B and company data, right? Like That's people right. are representing themselves in a way that I'm updating myself. I want to put stuff out into the world. I want to show up in a certain light on Crunchbase. So it, it is a little bit of a social community, not to the same extent, but yeah. you are including the user as part of that experience.
1: It's a two, it's a two side marketplace, right? We've got entrepreneurs and investors trying to find each other. We've got prospects and salespeople. We've got BD people in partnership, like pending yeah. partnerships. Um, all those like all those people are coming to Crunchbase to find one another, um, and we have ideas even how to streamline that and help people connect further. So so you're right that there's an opportunity there to go even deeper. Um, and just no one, no one does that on any other platform and that's secret sauce. That's why LinkedIn one, right? That's why LinkedIn yeah. one around resumes, uh, we see an opportunity for over Indeed
0: over ZipRecruiter right. over everything else. Yeah. Right. Um, and then that, uh, the other piece that I was curious about, just cause you deal with it at scale is the headaches with all the, the data compliance. So yep. what does that mean for you as an organization? How do you make sure that you stay protected against all the, all the stuff that could hurt you, GDPR, yeah. all that stuff.
1: This is it's a great question, and I think, and I'm a big advocate of privacy, and I and I think privacy laws are going to get much tougher in the future. Not 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 this isn't the, the end, um, and that's a good thing for us because we're company first. So what Crunchbase is all about is company information, like that's our primary record. Um, yes, we do have contact information. Yes, there are individuals' data in there, but for us that's secondary data. Whereas when you look at our competitors, it's often. The, the contact data is their first record. Like That's the most important record for them is, do I have the person and their contact information? Um, so in my perfect scenario, I want privacy a lot to make it so that no company can ever trade in contact information because it will shut down every competitor that we have and what will be left is only company information. Which companies are the ones I should prospect into? That's not protected, and that it will never be protected by privacy law, um, because it's not a person. So, so that means that's our strength. We are an account-based first, account-based selling, account-based prospecting platform um, that. As a, as a bonus happens to have some contact information as well for you. Um, and I think that's a huge differential for us. So, and it protects us from GDPR, it protects us from all these other places. Um, we, of course, comply with all these privacy laws. Um, and I even like talk to the people that work, like write GDPR and give them advice on getting, how to get it even more restrictive, because I, I think it's only in our all best interest to, to shut that shit down um, so mm-hmm. that people yeah. stop trading in, with, with our private data. Um, But, yeah, I've got a whole team thinking about it, and and and, the law is constantly changing. It's hard as a startup to keep up with that stuff, honestly, Um, and and, and we're pretty well resourced. But uh, it's it's a dynamic field that will only get more strict. So when you're building a product, be sure that you're thinking well in advance of not just what the law is today, but just don't get flat-footed because, again, I think all these contact providers are dead. Like, they just don't know yet.
0: I, I mean, I I don't disagree with you because when you when you lo- when when you look up information on that platform and you even run campaigns against you run campaigns with any of the data, I mean, I don't feel like especially in Canada I'm Canadian so I mean mm-hmm. Castle like there's there's no way that any of that complies with Castle, mm-hmm. and and you know you 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 do your best job to to make sure that there's unsubscribe and the U S is actually fairly forgiving mm-hmm. for cold outreach but in. You know, in Europe and Canada, it's, it's virtually impossible. And they have a lot of Canadian contacts, they have a lot of European contacts, they have a lot yep. of Californian com- contacts. So you wonder, right, how it's gonna evolve exactly. in the future if your entire business model is based off that. But anyway, that's not your problem. So that's... <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it could, it could be, it's, but it is stuff that, I, that, that we need to make that as easy as possible for people to remove themselves from, from the platform if they don't yeah. wanna be a part of it um but obviously privacy is number one security is number two on, on these two pieces um because it's so important to our business
0: um i want to talk about some of the the startup lessons so uh, i just alluded to this but how you how you partnered out a lot of your startups so with start, yeah. a lot of your startup a lot of crunch bases <laughs> growth and whatnot i'm, I'm speaking to you like a founder i mean you're, you're you've been there since day one but yeah. um but you get it so you've partnered out a lot of the pieces. Why did you choose to partner out? So if we go through the life cycle of crunch base, um, you, you proved out a business model, you proved out some product market fit, you found your customers, you raised your series B. Um, why did you choose to build a business model around partnerships and, and talk to us about, uh, what you partnered out and what you kept in house?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's, one of these things where i think a lot of people do that already but but if they're not they should um you know when when we spun out and we only had 20 people um what i didn't want those people doing is building things that were that were off-the-shelf solutions for i wanted them to focus on the things that were completely differentiated for us if you think, think about it, we were running a website that had 20 million people coming to Crunchbase. space that alone takes about 20 people like like how, how do you go and build more on top of that um, so, what I, as an example, like, I wouldn't want people to go and build onboarding a software, right? There was a, there was a debate at the beginning: Is do we, what do we do about that? Do we go and 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 buy something, or do we build the little toaster? Like here, click here to begin. Pendo didn't exist back then. Um, that's what we use today. We st- so that's still a thing that we have outsourced essentially to um, Pendo. Before that, it was a company called WalkMe. Um So these these companies were. That helped us, right? Like that saved weeks, if not months, of development time. So we didn't have to build the onboarding experience. We could just have a product manager build it from, from scratch um, or, or, or using their templates um other tools like obviously analytics you know like you don't want to have to have people going and building that stuff you use analytics tools that we use something called um grow which they may have gotten acquired but it was a a tool called grow that that helped us do analytics so i didn't have like i was doing the analytics (laughs) i was going and hooking up the systems and just trying to figure out how is the how are we doing even as a company um there's there, we did you mentioned QA. There was a company called Rainforest that did like QA for us. So all those things were not core competencies. I didn't want to hire anyone for it. It was just I wanted to hire just the people that could build the stuff that we needed. Um, and so it was just every time we, we we built were building a component. It was can we do that um, without building it? You know, is there anyone who does it? Um, and you'll find especially today, like it was a little bit different than back back then, but today almost every component of your application, you can find someone has already built a version of it somehow. Um, that's not that bad. Um, and if you and if you find a component that someone hasn't done that yet, pivot your company and go and build that instead, because that's probably a good idea.
0: <laughs> no, that's fair. And then when you think about the, what you wanted to focus your team on, how did you, so you said if it already exists, get someone else to do it, but for what people should actually focus on, because then I saw another piece you did about, you know, basically pressure testing your new products and your new widgets and your new and the new things you try and build out and you mentioned something in one of these past interviews it was like don't go to your peers don't go to don't go to you know your closest closest group of friends and see if this is a good idea you right. have to go to the people the true stakeholders the true customers are going to use it and validate whether or not that piece of your company or that new product is going to be useful but how do you f- choose what to focus on how do you choose what the next project is so that you can hyper-focus on the core competencies, or maybe it's pillars that you have in Crunchbase that you always wanna focus on. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is where you've, as a founder or as, a, as an early CEO, you need to trust your instincts a little bit. Like this, and this is maybe not aligned with what other people will tell you in, in like the Lean Startup universe. Um, no, I don't think any customer, any prospect, any user um, will, especially in enterprise software, will necessarily go and say to you, this is what you should go and build. Thanks for talking to me, I've got these ideas, I'm gonna tell you what they are. Um, They're they're always gonna react to what you have, and they're gonna push you down the wrong road if you go and and, and you go a little too open-ended. So, um, yeah, don't talk to your friends, don't talk to your family, they're just gonna tell you, yeah, you're doing a great job. Like, no one wants to tell you the bad news. Even customers of prospects, they want you to be successful, so they'll always say, yeah, I love this idea. Um, So at the end of the day, you have to. Really know your space well. You have to really know your, and, and like have a, tr- a vision that you fundamentally believe in, and have you've been intellectually honest with yourself that there's a real market there that you know how you're going to go and approach it. You've thought way deep in the future. Like I've thought like uh, way deep in the future to sort of figure out what problems will we have and then what's my solution and do I believe that solution? And if there's areas where you don't know the answer, like you've really tried hard and you can't solve a single one of these problems, then talk to users and maybe they'll, they'll give you an insight into getting to the answer. They're not gonna say this is the answer, but you could try a couple of things that you think might work and see which one might work better than the other. Um, but I have this challenge all day. It, with with Crunch Space, there's so many things for us to focus on if i talk to 100 users they're going to tell me 100 things wrong crunchbase um and we're not doing any of them (laughs) you know we're we're going to go after this other thing because it none of the no one's gonna say you know what jagger i really would love a prospecting crm that gets me revenue like no one's ever said that to me um and that's why like you need to swing for the fences if you want to build a big company
0: and that's, so that is you use your intuition, you use your understanding yeah. of what's broken in the, in the industry and your intuition to decide like what to focus on next and, and, yeah. and what's your feedback loop for whether or not that initiative is successful.
1: Yeah. It, it, this is again, very controversial, um, but it, it, for me, it's, 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 you know, build the prototypes, build it pretty far out, find your prospects and ask them if they'll buy it, you know, and, and that's um, it's. You know this i love showing pictures to people i love people reacting to that they're not going to react to slides and you don't want to wait till you've built the product obviously so just show them the thing and not asking anything other than will you buy it um mm-hmm. like if this was real right now um every all the other feedback it doesn't matter it really doesn't i um, mean if they say no ask why
0: um i was going to say no i just think that you uncovered something that I think a lot of other founders dance around and why the answer to that question is so uncomfortable is because it requires you to be obsessed with what you're building to actually have the intuition the intuition is not luck intuition is diving so deep into an industry or a category that the next possible step becomes natural which is why the most successful entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs that have been living in an industry for the past 20 years they find a problem they try and solve it right it's not the stanford grad that is the highest rate of success for an entrepreneur so i think that you actually uncovered something it's that Potentially, there's a lot of tricks, and maybe people try and gimmick and, and sort of game the, the product creation or the ideation process or something new. But ultimately, like, what it comes down to is just living and breathing what you're building every single day, and that's where you get the best ideas. And that's where you know things that maybe even your customers don't know, your company doesn't know. That's where you have to trust that you are the expert, but you have that's to right. be that expert. That's and and great
1: advice. It, it, it's good advice. It may be unrealistic for a lot of people because because I can imagine a founder who's like just out of college, like, well, well, okay, cool, thanks, Jagger. You're saying go go into the industry for twenty years and then and then launch your idea, like, like fuck off. Um, so <laughs> so I so I get that. Um, but I guess I'm talking to the person who's been at that company, stuck in that industry, dreaming of something better and bigger, and they have an idea. I would say your that advantage that you have of being in the industry leverage it, trust yourself, go after it. Um, you don't have to go through the same um, risky game of launching something where you don't really know the industry. Like I mentor a lot of companies and, and, and they, these folks will say like, hey, I've got a new like snack company and I'm, I, I'm, I've never done food or snacks or anything before. They're, the odds of failure are, are skyrocketing um, compared to someone who's coming from that industry. Uh, so so it's, 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 a, it's an unfair advantage that I have
0: um one thing that i think is admirable about how you structured your company may have come from your ptsd of being through a company and went through seven rounds of playoffs <laughs> but um the fact that you don't believe in growth at all costs so right. speak to me about what that is uh is it still prevalent in the industry or is that not really something that people believe in anymore speak to me about how you build Crunchbase without that mindset in terms of your your business who you hire your profitability your your investors you bring on the expectations you set with them
1: yeah i think there, i think there's two types of ceos and there's the one that loves that and you'll see hear investors tell you this ceos are always fundraising like you should be fundraising all the time and there's a certain ceo type that loves to do that and, that, and they agree with that that mentality i think that worked for the last you know half dozen years whatever it was um that doesn't work anymore um, and so the the CEOs that are the other type, which is
0: like did it me, ever work? Did it ever work though? Uh,
1: well, I mean, certainly you could raise money for without even trying for the last five six years. Yeah. Um, but but was your business really being built the right way? That's a that's a whole another set of questions. Um, but for me, it's um, I've always liked building efficient businesses. And and, and uh, we have also operated the assumption that we would get funding in two to three years, and that's what we've followed. But now with how the market has changed, even I've gone even more pr- pragmatic and just said, look, that was our last funding round. Like, great, you, we raise money. We are never raising money again. Um, and how do we run the business now? And I think everyone, even at the seed level of like, hey, I just raised a friend's family, or a seed round, or a series A, all, everyone should be saying, how long can we make this last? And if you um, can make it last forever, obviously that's, a, that's the winning move. Um, if it's years and years and years, awesome. If it's like 18 months, I would really take a careful look right now at what you're, what you're investing in. Are you doing ad spend so you can show growth to the next investor so that you can go and raise that round because someone's telling you you need to be growing at 50% or more every, um, every year? no you don't slow down because you're you that in 18 months none of us know what funding is gonna look like right funding is i mean we track funding so we have a lot of visibility in this it's cratered um this quarter compared to a year ago um and and if it keeps continuing it's just it's you don't want to depend on the market game, better, which means the dollars in your bank account need to last as long as they possibly can. Um, and I think every CEO is trying to deal with that. The problem is that these fast growing, the other CEO that, that, that raises and they're they at 10 million in revenue, they raise at a billion dollar valuation, and they have 500 employees um, because they thought they could just get raised in a round in six months, they're fucked. Um, yeah. So now like, what, you don't know what to do. So you have to lay off, it's ugly. Morale goes down. Your culture crashes, and you might not survive. Um, and that's who the hell wants to do that? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean no, you're, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, of course. Um, and you're you're profitable, obviously. Like you, we're not. No, we're not. Oh, you're not. Um,
1: nope, we're not. So, so in the first half of the year, we burned about two million dollars. Okay. um but we. Added nine million dollars in recurring revenue, so that's a good burn. To ra- to the, the, the burn ratio to the to the to the net new ARR, um, but no, we're not. We're still burning, but that's why I raise money, right? Like you don't raise if you. I was going to ask, I was,
0: like when when is it right for you? So then, as a CEO, your goal yep. when you when you do, re- and actually, I I have a question for you. How yep. do you manage inve- investor expectations? Because if you want to build a profitable, cash flowing company, and you say we don't want to raise if we don't have to. Yeah. how do you find the investors that are okay with that because investors do they not want an exit opportunity
1: well i think right now every investor is okay <laughs> with that what they really <laughs> do want is they don't want your business to go or you, you go to go out of business <laughs> um so i think i've certainly seen a, a shift in in investor dynamics um i've got a board meeting next week we're obviously going to be talking about what's happening in the market and what i've seen so far is they say look batten down the hatches i would protect the investment right um get as much growth as you can without overspending. And that's been our mantra for a long, long time. But I think every, every company is thinking the same way, just survive um, and don't count on funding.
0: Um, and then one other thing that I thought was interesting, um, when, when you, when you, well, actually, I know that part of what you had documented from Crunchbase is that 1.2% of all of all funding goes to black founders. And, and when I was speaking to uh, an individual on your team and we we're prepping for this podcast, um, that's dis- disgusting and kind of horrifying. Um, so what are, what are you doing uh, with Crunchbase to use your platform for good, for yeah. helping diverse founders? What are trends that you're seeing? How can we, like, one per, like 1.2% is, like it almost doesn't, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't compute. It, it's oh, yeah. not real how little funding is going to, to minority BIPOC founders. So how do, you, how do you fix that? I mean, it's not something that you can fix alone, but what do you think yeah. the industry should try and do?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few reactions to, to what you're talking about here. So one is use your company to do good in the world in any way you can. So we have this amazing channel. Let's go and do that. I recommend every company think about how they can do that. In our case, we have this channel. That channel lets us go and um, take the data we have and express out these sorts of issues so the reason people talk about that and like women founders uh, it's also incredibly low it's 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 in the single digits of uh, women who are getting funded it's just totally fucked up in our industry um, the only reason we know that is because of the data and the only people that are tracking that is, is us so that lets us go and push that out to the world to let people make know that change as far as what we can do about it um, we meaning the industry not crunch base um, I personally think that the the there's a we need to change how investors the the investors are, are are hiring um when you have diverse investment committees in these vc firms that make the investments they make diverse investments insane Um, When it's a bunch of white guys sitting around the the table, they make investments in people that look like them. And that's part of the problem. Um, I've seen pushes of like, well, let's go and push for diversity in boards of startups and stuff. And I think that's a little less realistic um, because that requires me as the founder to go and find diverse investors when there are very few of them. Um, and that just doesn't work very well. Um, and also when I'm raising, I might only have one term sheet on the table. I'm taking that one. I'm not, not yeah. taking it because it's not a diverse investor. Um, so you need to change the investor makeup um, at these firms, which and, and so in, a, in a maybe overly restrictive, but maybe a perfect world, um, the investor firms, would be held to a standard where they have to publish their diversity um scores um and then even have expectations of changing them to to match um something that, that represents the world that we live in um, is this is this a
0: 1.2 percent like post post you know george floyd oh yeah blm this is in 2022 oh, yeah. this is still 1.2 percent. so has and, the needle not moved at all
1: Oh, it, it sure has moved in the wrong direction. It's gone down. So, so in 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 a so post George Floyd, for a moment, for just a moment, it went up a little bit, and and everyone was optimistic that maybe we, we were on the right trend, but as soon as the market turned and went down, so did the investment dollars into um, these underrepresented classes, both both gender and race, um, and that's fucked up. Um, it really is, and and the reason, unfortunately, is that. The white males who are making the investment decisions tend to think it's a less risky proposition to invest in someone that looks like them, um, and, and it's my, my hypothesis and then that all of a sudden
0: of when there's no more when it's not in the news cycles anymore and they don't feel right. pressure and people aren't blowing them up on Twitter then all of a sudden they, all, they, they don't put the emphasis they don't put the focus on it anymore that's it's right. just it's not top of mind that's unfortunate that's, that's really true. actually that's really surprising. And that's 1.2%. why it, I,
1: I think it has to happen at the uh, it, there has to be a policy there has to be something that's instituted because i don't think it's going to happen naturally like this is some well that, if you look
0: shame. at this it's showing that it's not happening naturally correct
1: that's right 100%.
0: if people felt pressure and and like they were everybody was given as much opportunity as it could ever be afforded to be able to do this properly and be better right everybody was given that opportunity like even even if you even if you felt uncomfortable like the whole world was helping you be supportive of underrepresented founders and underrepresented business owners so now That's you right. take that and you can run with it and you and now you know what to do now you know how to maybe uh, find other types of founders that you never invested in before. Maybe you know how to um, allocate a certain percentage of your dollars because you've already done it and and you feel comfortable with that and you've put that into your investment thesis to, you know, so now, now you're, now you're all set up. But then obviously you just revert to exactly the way you were before. That's no good. So
1: exactly right. And, and, and so as a startup founder, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, um, like what you can do is mentor. Um, It's free to do, you know, and you can go and help out underrepresented classes and 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 help them with their startup idea. Um, So I try to do that. Um, I've got a number of different avenues and lead sources for me to go and help folks. I'm helping you know half dozen right now. um, Help their startup. Help make connections for them. Help them know. Who they should talk to, give them feedback on their pitch deck, give them ideas on how how they could scale. All that stuff is stuff that anyone can do if you've got a skill set that that's applicable, and that actually can go and increase the likelihood of success for for, for these underrepresented classes. Um, and anyone
0: can um no, amazing. Okay, um, I want to I want to just uh, pick your brain about the the future of Crunchbase. Obviously, okay. you have a, a million ideas coming in every single every single day, but where you should take it. Um, where do you want to take it? What do you what do you think is in store? I'm sure you ha- like you mentioned, you look uh, 10 years into the future when you're working on a company. So what's next? I mean, you have, you have this incredible product, you are the de facto, like you mentioned before. Um, yeah. Where do you take this next? And so I want to I want to bring out a lesson for somebody else that builds a marketplace in another category or another industry. And they look at the evolution of that marketplace and how to monetize and how to grow it and then ideas for where you can take it
1: yeah i i mean again the big thing that we're that we will be working on for the next many years is true crm like no one thinks of crunchbase as a crm system like it's just as disconnected from reality we don't have half the things you need for a CRM system so those are the things that we're going to build and those are the things that are going to come out that is the future from a product standpoint of what we're doing uh, taking one step back um something i really think we are able to do is. Prove to the world that you cannot build enterprise software without data. You can the, the days of building pr- productivity stuff on top of an empty database just doesn't work anymore. Um, and that future of like what AI and what machine learning is going to be helping do all all of that needs is data, um, you know. And so can um, can an expense reporting tool go and do um, like. Like things automatically based on data that it knows about what's happening in the market. Like, for instance, like, hey, I'm paying a certain amount for a vendor's software. What if your software comes back and says, hey, you know what? You're actually paying, you're in the top 10% quartile of what people pay for that particular piece of software. You're getting screwed. Maybe go back to the vendor and save yourself some money. Like, how could it do that well it has all this data right and that's and that would be the best expense reporting tool there is you could do that with any single ex- enterprise software out there if you add a layer of data it becomes infinitely more powerful than the empty database that you get when you get most expense reporting tools or whatever happen, happens happens or,
0: or crms or anything really i mean everything uh, I, Every so I, I would even ask um and you don't want to again you don't want to set your competition up to succeed but i would ask <laughs> like right outside of outside of spending 14 years plus aggregating data is there a way for another company that was a, a, a front end system first with no data in the back end is there a way for a company to do that
1: yeah of course i, I if i let's say I, let's say i had an expense reporting company i'm like thanks jagger i wish i knew that when i started um, yeah. like what do i what do i do um the, the great thing about the world today is that there are many, many, many data companies that aren't software companies. Very few have figured out that they should be a software company and, may, and, and there's very few software companies that realize they should be a data company. So that data is out there. So someone out there is tracking how much people spend on software or, or on, on, on vendors as in this example go find them, they're desperate for dollars. You know, like data companies are hard to make money on. So go talk to them, form a partnership, do a little bit of a rev share with them or something, just get started. Um, and now you're importing that data in, and now you can build that great software. You didn't have to reinvent the wheel of where to get that data from or how to, how to source it. You just found that one partner that has it, you can validate the idea and then you can go from there. I would just, if you're building software on an empty database, what data would, make, would make your software 100 times better? go find it because it, I, I can't think of a single example of that of where it doesn't already exist.
0: I love that. Okay. Um, uh, last, last I'll, we have one more question I always ask, but before we pivot, um, what would be one piece of advice that you'd leave a, an entrepreneur with a, a founder? If the most important thing that you've learned over your career, what would be one thing that you just want to impart on them?
1: Hmm. So many things come to mind. Um, the, the, the biggest and most applicable now is, is, um, don't raise. And, and I'm not saying it don't raise cause it's hard. It's, it's just, it isn't worth it. Um, the, and, and, and it, you'll build a better business if you stay scrappy longer. There's exceptions to this rule of like there's real competition. that's going to kick your ass if you don't go fast enough. Okay. But most of the time that's not the case. So take your time, preserve your ownership, Keep, keep your vision pure and go after it. You're, you did it for a reason, you know, and, and, and make it happen.
0: each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts...